Let's pray for uh, Kids Hope and we'll also uh, pray some along the lines of our uh, sixth petition, uh, Lead Us Not Into Temptation. Let us pray. O oh Lord, our pride is greater than we can imagine. Our independence are just being oblivious to the warfare. Our lack of concern for holiness, our lack of concern for growth, our lack of concern for where we could be if we really sought you with all of our heart for one week and then another week and another and another. Where would that trajectory land us in three years versus the trajectory of a lackadaisical attitude towards sin. We pray that you would forgive us for lack of passion to know you more, lack of passion to conform ourselves to Christ, lack of concern over sin, period, lack of sensitivity. We need to have an allergy that against sin that we hate it. It's obnoxious to us. It's something that we fight against. And yet to do that, Lord, in a sin, with, with the sense of your presence and your love, your forgiveness, that we are accepted in Christ, that we are your beloved children, that we are intimate with you, protected, that you're working in our lives, that you have taken up this cause to make us holy and to conform us to Christ. All of these things And Lord, these things should, we know, cause us all the more to throw ourselves, hurl ourselves into this glorious battle, knowing that it is only accomplished, it is only won through the precious blood of Christ, who has died for us and delivers us by His power and by His Spirit. Lord, we pray that this will be our prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Grant us that humility. Grant us that brokenness. Grant us that faith and desire. Grant us that confidence in your power alone to deliver us. And grant, Lord, that we will, as James declares, resist the evil one and he will flee from us. That it will be fulfilled in our lives. What Paul declares, that you will soon trample the evil one under your feet. We pray that we will stand strong in the strength of the Lord, the strength of his might, knowing that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and dark forces in high places. Lord, thank you that in Christ, as our sister has declared, We have the victory in Him. In You alone, for You alone are our Savior. And Lord, we pray that You might enable us to continue in this mentoring program, to expand, to have more people join in, to have a greater and greater benefit in these children's lives. We pray particularly that they might trust in Jesus Christ as well that they might find Him their protector, their comfort, that they might hide themselves in Him and find forgiveness of sins in Him, 
And oh Lord, that You would guard their precious little lives. Call them to Yourself, O Lord. Use us, we pray, as instruments of the love of Christ. Not only to them, but to their families. We pray, Lord God, by Your grace, that we would see families involved in our church. Members professing Jesus Christ because of this ministry of the Gospel of Christ. Bless us, Lord. And bless us as we come to Your Word, that we may understand it, that we may believe it, that we may live it out in our lives. For Jesus' sake, Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. And if you're using the Bible that's there in the chair or pew, turn to page 1007. We began this chapter last week. We got a basic definition of faith from verse 1. And now in verses 4 through 7, we'll come to another central definition of faith, or you might say how faith works, the critical place of faith. And so verses 1 and 6 really form the hub of this whole chapter. Everything revolves around uh, these verses. And really it's from verse 6 that I've taken the overall title for the series, uh, Faith is Expecting God to Do Us Good. And in this passage we have the Statement from the writer of Hebrews that uh, is the basis for that title. So here we have three people that we'll deal with. uh, Abel and Enoch and Noah. And this is, here's a great word to use. The antediluvians. Oh, yeah. Uh, For the deluge means the the flood. So these are not anti, against the flood, but anti, A-N-T-E, before the flood. And so they just call it antediluvians. So what he does is right from the, go right from creation, Genesis 1, and begins to trace through up to the flood. And so he takes these three people, Abel, Enoch, and Noah. Interesting, though, when you think about what's shown us in each of these, uh, Abel shows us perseverance and faith that may even lead to death itself. And it did in his case. What a, an appropriate word to these people to whom he's writing that are facing possible death. That the very first example is Abel who confessed his faith in God and he died for it. And God commended him. And then secondly, Enoch And in him, we learn that in believing in God, you ultimately will have eternal life. Now, he bypassed death altogether. He was just taken up and never died. But it's a model for us of eternal life, that those who believe have life everlasting. And then Noah gives us the example that those who believe escape judgment. So faith that enables us to endure in the face of death, And even in the very occurrence of death and faith that brings us eternal life and delivers us from the judgment to come. So huge issues that are launched right off the bat. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still 
speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. That's the reading of God's word. And we'll just take them as they come. We'll just first talk about Abel, then Enoch, and then Noah. And we'll deal with verse 6 uh, some along the way, but especially when we talk about it with uh, Enoch. Now, it has been a subject of much, uh, much writing and, and thought as to what made Abel's offering acceptable and Cain's not acceptable when you read the account in the Old Testament. Abel was a shepherd. He had animals, and so he made an offering of his animals. Cain tilled the field. So it says he brought offering from his field. And some have wanted to say uh, bad things about offerings from the field, etc. But the, the text itself there in Genesis offers no problem there. It's, it's obvious. This was his vocation. This is what he possessed. He gave it to God. This was uh, Cain's vocation and what he possessed, and he gave it to God. And we don't know exactly how God showed that he accepted. One possibility offered early was that God consumed it by fire, as he did the Levitical offering when it was first made on the altar, or as he did for Abram, as he did on a lot with Elijah, consuming the offering. We don't really know that, but that's not really that important. The point is here, this writer focuses in on the real issue. And it was that Abel brought a different heart than Cain did. Abel was a man of faith. That is the difference between them. And in offering his uh, making his offering, he was a different person than Cain was when he made his offering. And that spelled the difference. Gregory the Great, early on, wrote, It was obvious that it was not the offerer who received approval because of the offerings, but the offerings because of the offerer. Calvin, the same thing. Uh, His sacrifice pleased God because he himself was pleasing to God. So they were in a certain condition before the offerings. And the offerings merely made manifest what their hearts were really were. And so if he was a man of faith, this means that Abel was dependent upon God. Abel knew that all that he had came from God. He was humble before God. He was grateful to God. He obviously then loved God and was offering in his offering of this animal sacrifice. He was offering up All that he had to God. It was a sign of the offering of himself to God in gratitude for God's mercy, in helpless dependence upon all that God did for him. 
And there is some indication of the text that his offering was sincere because he offered the first fruits, it says, and he also offered the fat of the animal, which is the best part of the animal. And it says of Cain that he merely took when the season was over, he just brought some crops, not the first fruits. So that may be an indicator. It may be an indicator of this sincerity, this faith, this humility, this love, this gratitude that caused him to want to give himself and of his portion freely to God. And so it was an offering of faith. Cain was either going through the motions, trying to impress God, thinking that he was doing a great thing uh, by just giving anything. He may have even given his offering reluctantly, wishing that he didn't have to, but he got to keep up appearances for his parents, for his brother. Whatever the motive, it wasn't this motive of gratitude, humility, brokenness, dependence, love, adoration. This was an offering on Abel's part that adored God. And so Proverbs 15, 8 says the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination, but the prayer of the righteous is his delight. Now, interesting application for us is the offering of our substance to God. There are a lot of people that attend churches, and of course, the, the figures are such that, say, 2-3% of people's income in the evangelical church is generally what they offer up to God. Now, I want to say this not as a matter to say, I hope you won't think of it as, oh, those people. And, and a lot of times this is how people put uh, you know, ministers off. And there's enough stuff on the TV, you know, that just makes you sick at your stomach. Some guy asking to, you know, if you'll uh, give so-and-so and so-and-so, every great thing's going to happen to you and come buy this handkerchief and everything else in the world. Uh, just a bunch of voodoo for all I'm concerned. But <clears throat> here's the issue that your sense of gratitude to God as your creator and moreover as your redeemer as the one who has bought you with his own blood. And Paul puts that before us in 2 Corinthians. He says, in the context of giving, in the context of the Macedonians who gave sacrificially, even though they were poverty stricken themselves. He said they not only gave of their substance, they gave of themselves to us. Even though they hardly had anything, the indication is they didn't know how they were going to eat, but they were still going to give to those Jerusalem saints who were starving to death. And he said they did it joyfully. I was I was suggesting to them, no, you don't need to. It's the very opposite, is it? Please give. Won't you give? Won't you give? No, please. No, you don't. need. No, we got to. We've just got to. And in that context. Paul says, he who was rich became poor for our sake, that we who are poor might become rich. See the, the context, you see the motivation, you see what surrounds us. And so 
a lot of times people say, well, what about the tithe, the 10%? And the New Testament, I believe, is not altogether clear on exact tithe. If you really get into the tithe thing in the Old Testament, you'll find out it's probably 15, 16%, counting all the poor tithe and this tithe and that tithe. So you're probably like, yeah, let's don't talk about percentages here. <laughs> That's just a bunch of legalism. Yeah. <clears throat> But the question before us is, what about Christ? What about the one who gave everything for us? Who was poor, became poverty stricken. And now we who are poverty stricken, we become rich in him. So what's our response going to be? That's what the Lord puts before us in the New Testament. And so, yeah, we can do away with percentages, but it's not to breathe a sigh of relief. But it's to enter into the joy of sacrificial love. And I tell you, here with Abel is an example of one who, by faith, gave freely, gave with joy, gave sincerely. And God accepted his offering. And God, it's not that you can win God's favor because you're going to give a greater proportion of your income. Say, hey, I'm probably going to heaven. I mean, I upped it from 8% to 12% last year. Yeah, of course not, you know, or 3 to 10 or whatever. But the, the question is, why would you not? It has nothing to do with me. It really doesn't have, I mean, it has something to do with the ongoing ministry of this church, which we want to see more and more people brought to Christ and more and more people brought under the love of Christ through our ministry. And other ministries that we support. But there's another issue of you and God. Faith. Faith that says I'm entirely dependent upon God. Everything I have has come from Him. I'm so grateful to Him. I'm so amazed at Him. I want to give Him of a portion to show it as a sign that you have my whole life, O Lord. And that generally is not done when you throw a fiver in every week. Generally, unless you make, you know, 500 bucks a year or whatever. So I'm just saying that this passage speaks of an, ex- an acceptable sacrifice. And of course, we can not only talk about giving, we talk about our worship. We talk about everything that we do in our lives. It's by faith that we give ourselves up to him in gratitude. And isn't it glorious that though he was killed, it says... Though he died, he still speaks. Now, I love this because it's saying it looks like he was snuffed out, purposely done away with. And you can get that sense of Cain. Yeah, your, your, your uh, sacrifice was accepted, but we're just going to silence you forever, dude. It's over with you. Ha, I'm the one alive now. I'm the one that's around now. And you see, he gets that backdrop. The writer says, though he's dead, he still speaks. And Moffat says, death is never the last word for a righteous man. I love that. Never the last word for a righteous man. And Luther says, he then who was actually alive could not teach even his own brother, only brother by his faith and example. Now that he is dead, he teaches the whole world. He's more alive than ever. So great a thing is faith. It is life in God. 
And then I love Matthew Poole's statement, one of the Puritan writers. By his faith, though murdered out of this world and his place knows him no more. And with the design that is by Cain, with the design that he should never speak or be spoken of anymore. Yet now he speaks. So that's another message. Faith has victory even over death. And then Enoch, by faith, was taken up so that he should not see death. And Enoch was like Elijah, one of the few that possibly Moses, because his body couldn't be found. But certainly Elijah was taken up and here Enoch was taken up. It said twice in the Hebrew in the Old Testament that he walked with God. Now, when they translated that into the Greek uh, before the time of Christ, this word Instead of saying he walked with God, those people who translated didn't like these anthropomorphisms. They didn't like, it almost sounded like God was down here walking with him. So they translated it, he pleased God in both cases. And that's what's taken up by our writer, because they were using the Greek uh, version of the Old Testament. But it's interesting because it tells us something that he walked with God because he pleased God. He walked with God because God took pleasure in him. God was delighted in him and he in God. It's it underscores the intimacy that he had with God, that he was dear to God. And by saying that he walked with God in the Old Testament, it reminds us of Micah 6, 8, that what does God require of you? But to walk humbly with your God, to do justly. And to love mercy. And certainly that would have been the mark of Enoch. He was he walked intimately with him. He delighted in God. Obviously, he loved God and knew himself to be loved by God. That's what it means to walk with God in union with God. He was like God, else he couldn't walk with God. His life was given up to God. That's why he walked with God. He had joy and delight and awe in God. And it says, by faith, he did this. It was as one helpless and dependent, as one who saw his own lack of righteousness and who gave himself up to God for transformation, for forgiveness and for mercy. That he walked with God and God showed his delight in him that he didn't even die. An amazing thing. That he translated him immediately, body and soul, into heaven. And that for us is a little picture of our final translation, our final transformation, which is described in Places like 1 Corinthians 15, it says, when he comes, when the last trumpet sounds, we will be transformed. Or very clearly put in the end of Philippians chapter 3, if you'll turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. You can read verses 20 and 21. These are great two verses to memorize. If you want a summary statement. Of what is going to happen when Jesus comes. Much better theology than the left behind books. Okay. 
Always get your theology from the Bible. That's just a basic thing. I'll just throw that out there. But our citizenship is in heaven. By the way, he just has talked about people walking as enemies to the cross of God. And they were glorying and setting their mind on earthly things. But here's the contrast. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. I should have told you that's on page 982. If you're in the pew, Bible, I'm sorry. But you see, he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. And so Enoch is at least this picture for us of the final transformation. And he is an example of what follows in verse six, that he rewards those who seek him. And so Enoch was rewarded in this amazing way. But we all will be rewarded in that amazing way. We serve him based on the fact that we believe even if we lose our lives in his service, if our lives are cut short in his service, we're not clinging to that life. We know we've got a new life in Christ. We will be resurrected to a life that will never die. And we will have bodies that will never grow old or sick or be hurt in any way. And we will be perfected in joy And perfected in love for one another. So, by faith, this occurred with Enoch. And then he goes on to say, without faith, it is impossible to please him. Whoever would draw near to God must believe he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And when he says believe that he is or believe that he exists, it's more in the sense of, yeah, okay, there's a God. No, it means that you believe in the majestic God, the all powerful creator of heaven and earth, that you believe that he is the judge of the world, that you believe you are made by him, that you believe you are responsible to this God and that he has all power and as included. And you might say underscored in all of that is that second phrase. And this is really his point is that you must believe that he rewards those that seek him. Now, literally, the word is not, there's not a verb rewards. There is the word rewarder of those that seek him. Now, sometimes we think, you know, it's a base, it's a, it's a base motive that would serve God for reward. We, we don't do that. We don't, we don't serve God for reward. We just serve him just to serve him because we should serve him. And that sounds holy and right and good and noble, but it's flat wrong. OK, because not only are we allowed to think about reward. What does it say? This little Greek word, D-E-I, day, means it is necessary. You must believe he's a rewarder. You have to believe that or you won't please him. You have to believe that he is an infinite benefactor that. And I love the way Calvin puts it. He puts it simply. You must believe that you are the concern of God. Is that not beautiful? You must believe when you come to him 
that you are His concern. And that He desires, with a desire that you cannot imagine, to do you good. God will not have us view Him in any other way. He is the rewarder. That's who He is. That's His name. (laughs) That's His name. The one who does us good. That's the covenant itself, isn't it? I am your God and I will be with you and I will do you good. And the reward, of course, the rewarder of those that seek him, the reward is himself. Notice he rewards those that seek the stuff he gives them. (laughs) He rewards those that want a bunch of this. He rewards those who seek him. That's it. Do you want him? You will have him. Do you not want him? You will have nothing. Let me declare that to you. Whoever you are, you want God, you seek him and you'll have him and you'll have everything else that he brings on that that a, a God can give to his people. If you don't seek him and don't want him, Even what you have, Jesus says in the last day, will be taken away from you. It's really an all or nothing deal. You have everything in him and you have nothing apart from him. That's what faith does. Faith only wants God. Really, ultimately. That's why faith will give up anything and everything for God. That's fine. Faith will not turn away no matter how much suffering there's involved, no matter how much loss, no matter the tragedy, because what faith really wants is him. I don't ultimately want a comfortable life. I want him. I don't ultimately want everything to work out. I want him. And I, I, I hope you see the seriousness of this. That's what faith does. Real faith. And you can get what he's saying to these people who are beginning to turn away because of the persecution they're receiving. It says, faith believes, no, it doesn't turn away from God. It it runs to him because it believes in you are all the treasures of life. And to abandon you for some earthly pleasure or to avoid some earthly pain, I lose everything, everything. You know... I have a certain advantage, I think, at this point of, of uh, thanks be to God, I had no temptation in this area. But I've thought before, what would happen to my life if I committed some heinous sin? You know, a doctor can still be a doctor, a lawyer, many times can still be a lawyer if they commit adultery or whatever. Man, I just would lose everything, wouldn't I? You know that as a minister. I would no longer be a minister. I would, be, I would have to start over in something. I would lose my family. I would lose every... I mean, the thought just keeps me so scared of even the possibility of that. that I lose everything. Oh, for nothing, really. For nothing. And I throw that out to you because... The stakes are infinitely greater 
for you to pursue anything or any person or besides God Himself in Jesus Christ. He is a rewarder for those that seek Him. You want to please Him? Then expect Him to do you good. <laughs> Isn't that a great thing He wants you to do? He wants you to expect Him to bless you. He wants you to expect Him to change you, to transform you. You are the concern of God. You will be satisfied in Him. He will not put you off. He will not disappoint you ever. And without this faith, it is impossible to please Him. And I just close with Noah, because Noah is the example of being saved from judgment, isn't he? Warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, he constructed an ark. And notice, in reverent fear, constructed an ark. And you, you've heard the tales of you know, what it must have been like. And it, we see in other passages like First Peter 3 that he was a preacher of righteousness. And there are even writings that describe what Noah might have preached, you know, that kind of thing. It's all conjecture. But proclaiming to his generation of the coming judgment of God to abandon their uh, murderous lifestyle and their hatred of one another because judgment is coming. And here's the construction of this gigantic ark. Uh, you know, it's 450 feet, like a football field and a half long, a big rectangle box and three stories high and just in the middle of nowhere, you know. You can't move it to water. It's not going to ever touch water. Everybody had to think he was crazy. You see, it says, events as yet unseen. It takes us back to verse 1. The conviction of things not seen. He had a conviction from God. God said. And because of that conviction, he was saved from the judgment. And you may be here uh, never having trusted in Christ. And we declare to you that there is a coming judgment. Christ promises it. In fact, this judgment upon the world of the flood was just a preview, a little picture of what will come upon the world. Peter talks about this in Second Peter, that the world was judged by water, but now the judgment is coming by fire. And this whole world will be burned up in judgment. And it will be remade into the new heavens and the new earth. But there is a coming judgment of God. And you can imagine what you would do if a train was speeding 70 miles an hour down the track and here was a car stuck on that track. Just the fear of those people and they're trying to unlock the doors and they can't and can't get out of their seatbelts and just the fear of watching that happen as this train bears down on them. And I just want to urge any one of you here to believe, to have faith in the Word of God that declares to you. And, and you might look around and say, well, the world's been going on for thousands of years. Peter says that people will say that. People will say, well, look, things just go on like they always have. You tell me judgment? You tell me Christ is coming? Kind of hard to buy. 
Same thing. Every one of those bloated bodies in the water, so many of them mocked Noah. None of them believed him. But that word determined the future. It was the future. It is the conviction of things not seen. And brothers and sisters, in regard to every act of your life, live in the light of that coming judgment. Be found in Christ. Trust in Christ alone. Don't turn from Him in any way. Don't allow other affections to interfere. Continue to give yourself so freely to Him in worship and grow in grace constantly. Be shored up more and more in Christ. Paul says, make your calling and election sure. Sure. Show more and more evidences. More and more fruit that you have a passion for Jesus. You trust Him. You're helpless before Him. All of these things. Why? Because there is Judgment And faith believes in that judgment, lives in the light of that judgment, never pushes that judgment away as though it's not going to happen. We always live in the light of that judgment. Well, by faith, Abel will teach us to trust in God in the face of death. Enoch teaches us to walk with God intimately and that we will have eternal life. And Noah teaches us that we will be saved from judgment by faith. May we all seek this God who is the rewarder. Let us pray. Lord, thank You for Your grace in Christ Jesus. Thank You for Him who died on the cross to save us from our sins, who died as a substitute, bearing the punishment of sinners, so that, Lord, we might receive forgiveness of sins. Thank You for His righteousness. We have none in ourselves but hidden in Him, dependent upon Him, united to Him, we can have a righteousness that brings us into Your very presence. By Christ, we as well as Enoch can walk with God. And You delight in us because You delight in Your own Son and we are found in Christ. Therefore, we as well walk with God. We have delight in You and You in us because we are in Christ. And we thank You, Lord, that by Your grace we might make known our faith and even bear up under persecution and even death if You call us to that, even as faithful Abel did. And Lord, may we walk in the footsteps of Noah. And may we believe in the coming judgment of God, that which is unseen. May it bear upon our lives every single day. May we never, ever live apart from that knowledge of the coming judgment and the restoration of all things in Jesus Christ. And Lord, may we regard You as the glorious, unlimited benefactor, the rewarder, the one who spends Himself freely and completely for any person who will seek You. Give us grace to seek You and in our seeking of anything else, may it be a part of our seeking God Himself. Give us this grace for Jesus' sake. Amen.